Well, happy Sabbath, everyone. So good to see you. So good to see you all for uh, our friends who are watching live and those who listen on the podcast during the week. We are so glad that at this moment you made this time to be here and to experience Jesus and his word. And it is our prayer that you may have, as you leave this place, had an encounter with him personally. In the 1950s, there was a man by the name of Eric Erickson. And Eric Erickson was what we call now a uh, counselor and a, a psychologist. And he is the one who coined the phrase identity crisis. Now, based on the identity theory, there are eight stages as in the life of an individual. And as these stages are negotiated from one to the next, the individual confirms his or her identity. However, the lack of proper negotiation between one stage and the next causes the individual to suffer. Now, the stages goes, go like this. From one to three, from three to five years of age, from 6 to 10, from 11 to 18. Now, parents, you're, if you look at your children, you think, now, now, now I know why he's so crazy. 11 to 18, 18 to 34, 35 to 50. Yes, adults get crazy too. And from 60 on. Now, according to this theory, each individual, as they go from one stage to the next, some questions need to be answered. And some of those questions are like, why am I here? Who am I? How do I fit? Am I loved? And when those questions receive a satisfactory answer, the individual moves from one stage to the next with ease and, and, and assure of his of, or her his or, or his or hers identity. I can't even speak anymore. I'm so excited about this. But when those questions are not properly answered, the individual has questions of, of his own and his, in their own mind. They ask questions like, well, if I don't know who I am, if I don't know who loves me, if I don't know where I'm going or why am I here, well, there's no reason for me to be here. And all kinds of psychological consequences set in because of the lack of proper negotiation from one stage to the next. We've been studying the churches that Jesus writes to in the book of Revelation. And we've discovered that each one of these churches has issues and has a promise. Today we'll dive into, into the church of Philadelphia and the letter of the church of Philadelphia. And we find that this church in Philadelphia has an issue. And the issue of this church is an identity crisis. Oftentimes as individuals, we try to find out who we are. And we try to, to imitate people because there's people who we admire. Some people are people who are good at business. And because we want to get in business or we are in business, we want to imitate. We want to emulate their behavior, their history. And that's why we buy the books that say the seven rules for su successful management. Because we want to be like those people. We want to do what they do. But we find that we are not achieving happiness or success because we try to imitate someone who we are not a, at all like. 
And in the search for to find somebody who we can follow and imitate, we find that all we are doing is getting exhausted and getting tired because we cannot become the person that we are supposed to be. Jesus has a message for the tired. So I'm talking to single people and to, and to mothers with little children. I'm talking to adults and I'm talking to elderly people. Because at some point in time in our lives, we all have been tired. And tired because we haven't remembered at one point who we really are. And the problem is that we make a lot of bad choices in life because we haven't remembered who we are. Let's open our notes or Bibles in the chapter 3 of Revelation. And let's go to verse 7. And the first part, Revelation chapter 3 verse 7. In, in the bulletin that you received, there's a section on the right side with the notes for today. And he reads from the New King James Version, And the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes. Philadelphia. We know what it means, right? Brotherly love. And, and the story of the city of Philadelphia is rather interesting because King Attalo II built this city for his brother. He loved his brother so much that he said, Brother, I love you so much. I'm not going to give you a house. I'm not going to give you a car. I'm going to build a city for you. Who would like to have a brother like that? The problem about Philadelphia is that as we've been looking at each one of the cities in Revelation, we've discovered that those cities had some identity to the cities that we know today. In Philadelphia was a city... Kind of like Barstow. It was the last city before the savage world. It was the city with the outlets and the last restroom. In fact, in old times, this city was known as a citadel place. And citadel means not a place with outlets. But it meant that it was a city that was constructed that would fulfill a purpose, and the purpose was that when a foreign army would come to invade the main city, they would stop at the citadel city, and as they conquered that citadel city, the people from the main city would have enough time to escape. That was Philadelphia. Now you see that the gift was not that great. Philadelphia also was a city that in the prophetic timeline represents the city after the Great Awakening. Great, the Great Awakening was the moment when after the Reformation, people were allowed to read the Scriptures. There was the opportunity to get a Bible of your own and not just on your own, of your own, but also in your own language. People could actually read translations in the vernacular and they could read what the Bible said and the words of Jesus and every single of the teachings that comes from the scriptures were easily attained for each individual. So that created a wave. And this wave allowed people to read not just the gospels but also the prophecy. And people began to discover one thing that for 2,000 years had not been preached about. And that was that Jesus was coming back. 
So this turn of events in history and the story of religion, it is called the Great Awakening. That means that everybody at that time, before that time, were sleeping. Are you breathing this morning? So now what we're finding is that this church is actually being awakened by the truth that Jesus is coming back. See, before that, people were just waiting to die and go to heaven. But now the Bible is teaching us, family, and what history tells us, that in this time, people were not just waiting to die. They were waiting as they were alive, as they were living and breathing, to see the coming of the Lord in the clouds, in glory and majesty. This is what we call the Great Awakening. And in the prophetic timeline, the city of Philadelphia is living in the time of this Great Awakening. So this is a time in history where there are no persecution. There are no problems of social caliber in a way that the church could be affected. But when we go back in history to the time of this city of Philadelphia, Nation Minor, we discover a few things, family, that today we can hardly understand but we will relate to. One of them is that because there was no persecution, it became a period of time when everything was acceptable, where there was tolerance for things. Are you with me this morning? And because everything was acceptable, they believed that Jesus was just another way to God. It was quite interesting. A few years ago, I had an opportunity to go and do evangelism in India. And while I was in India, um, I, I discovered that people were very re receptive to the, to the message that I was preaching. And uh, uh, the church where I was preaching at, it was actually pretty full. And I was exciting because, excited because I was preaching in English. And the other pastor was translated into Telugu. It was a language that was spoken in that local village in, in, uh, in, this, in the town of Nalgonda. Why are you laughing? I don't know why you're laughing, but that was the name of the town. Now, what happened was, uh, what, what happened was that uh, as I was preaching, people were really receptive, especially when I used the word scriptures. So at the end of the second night, I asked the pastor, you know, it seems like these people are really getting it. They're really understanding the message of Jesus. And the pastor with a smile said, Pastor, you know, they're excited because you're American. And second, because they accept anything. What? Yeah, yeah, see, here in India, there's about 75 different deities, and, and they accept everything that has the word scripture because they revere it and, and they, they, they accept anything that is ancient and that is holy. See, here the problem is not for people to accept Jesus. The problem is to accept Jesus as the only God. And this is exactly what was happening to the church of Philadelphia. They were accepting everything. They were accepting Jesus, but Jesus was not the only God. And you know, we live in a time in a culture today when we accept everything and anything. And we mix everything with anything. So our problem, family, is to understand that Jesus is the true and only God. And because of our lack of identity in Jesus, we fall for anything. And that is the problem to the church of Philadelphia. Let's continue with, with, with the passage. Because see, there were three implications about this tolerance. First, they believed that a God, a God could not come to man. So for Jesus to become a man, 
and being a God, they believed that God was living his deity and his divinity and he was coming closer and closer to humanity, living his divinity until he became Jesus. So they believed that Jesus, yes, he was a special man, a special holy man, but he was not completely God because he has left divinity a long time ago. They didn't believe that it was possible for a true God, a complete God to be with man. So the implications are this. Jesus, they believe, because he was not, he was human but not completely God, he lived with sin. It was an impossibility for them to, that Jesus could live without sin. So now you understand where we're coming from because today we believe that Jesus was just another good guy. Not, when I say we, I talk, I'm talking about culture. Second thing, another implication is that Jesus was not the only way. Because there were so many other divinities, so many other ways to God, Jesus could not be the only one. And the third one is that, well, Jesus was not God. Because either you are God or you're not. You cannot be a little bit. It's like being pregnant. Either you are or you're not. You're not a little bit pregnant. So the first lesson that we need to understand, family, is that in this church of Philadelphia, by the way, this is all that is left. Jesus is asking the question, do you know who Jesus is? Verse 7, second part, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Now there's a lot of things that we need to unpack from this text. And the first thing that we need to understand is the word holy, he who is holy. Now holy is an interesting term because it appears in two forms in the Bible. The Bible says that he who is not holy will not see what? God. That's what the book of Hebrews says. That only those who are holy will be able to see God. So we come into a bind because, well, turn to your friend right there and tell him I'm holy. Don't be afraid. Turn to your neighbor and tell him I'm holy. Why don't you? If you're not holy, you're not going to see God. Now let me ask you, do you want to see God? Are you holy? <laughs> What's the problem? Okay, let me go back. The Bible says that there's, we are to be holy. We are holy people. That's what the Bible says. That we are holy people. Designed with a specific purpose. With a reason. With an identity. But also the Bible talks about the holy. In Greek, in the Greek, is the word hagios. Can you say hagios? Sounds like you have a phlegm or something. Hagios. But hagios means holy. But when he talks about Jesus, when he talks about God, says ta hagios. The holy. There is a difference between being holy and being the holy. In, the, in Hebrew, it even makes it more clear because the word for holy is Kodesh. Can you say Kodesh? But the holiest 
The most holy is Kodesh Kodashim. Are you with me now? We are to be holy, we are to be Kodesh, but there's only, that, only one that is Kodesh Kodashim. There's only one who is a Tahagios. Now, how does this work? Isaiah tells in, in chapter 6. The fours didn't want to work with me this morning. Isaiah says, and no one cried, and, and one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth, earth is full of his glory. Now, here is talking about the identity of the one who is glorious. And I think that all of us here agree that there's only one in the Bible who is glorious. That is God. So the identity of this God, says here, is that it's holy, holy, holy. This phrase, this triple holy, was taken to the book of Revelation. And in chapter 5, the angels in heaven, according to, to, to the revelator, say that when Jesus appears, they cry, holy, holy, holy. Now, we don't understand it because it's not in Hebrew, but in Hebrew, it is a progressive expression. Now... Let me explain to you what this means. This section, at the count of three, is going to say holy. Are you awake? Okay, one, two, three. Okay, now this section at the count of three is going to say holy. One, two, three. This section at the count of three is going to say holy. One, two, three. This section at the count of three is going to say holy. One, two, three. Okay, now, when I point at, at your section, you are going to say holy, but once you say it, you're going to say it together. Once I point to this section, you're going to say it together, and once I point to this section, everybody's going to do it together. Are you with me? Okay, let's see if you got it. Ready? Okay, now like you mean it, okay? Ready? Do you see the progression? Do you see the, the volume? Imagine this is what he's saying. God is like this. God is not just holy. God is holy. Now, this is exactly what the identity of God is. It's something that cannot be contained, that cannot be limited. It's something that is so big, so, so incredibly amazing, that cannot be contained in just one word. It has to be repeated three times. Now, that is the identity of the holy. Second thing it says is the true. The true. The nature of God is that He is true. Now, let me explain how this works. Do you remember the day that you learned how to swim? Now, that was, that was amazing, wasn't it? You jumped in the pool or somebody pushed you in either way. There's different techniques. And once you were in the water, you began to kick and to move your arms and you flop until your head was out of the water and you reached the side of the pool or the river or whatever you were learning to swim. But once your head was out of the water, then you said, okay, I can't do this. I'm going to do it again. And you began to leave the side of the wall and you began to swim to a farther place and a farther place and a farther place until one day you said, I can get all the way to the other side. 
And now you're doing laps. Because you learn how to swim. With all your experience swimming, I can tell you that there's not one of you who has learned how to breathe underwater. Because even if you try to breathe underwater, that is not your nature. You were not made to breathe underwater. See, God's nature is to be true. He cannot tell a lie. That is his nature. His nature is to be true. And everything that comes out of his mouth, everything that is in his word, that is, what, that is why the Bible is called his word. Because nothing false, nothing that is a lie can be found in it because he is, say it with me, true. Now, when he's described as true, we have to understand that all these lies that were happening in the church of Philadelphia, the identity of Jesus, set him aside. Because he is true. And we understand holy, we understand true, but the, the one concept that is given there in chapter 7 of, of Revelation chapter 3 is the most confusing, and this is the key of David. And if you remember when we began this series, we talked about that there's certain rules that we need to understand to, to interpret Revelation properly. And one of them is that we need to understand the Old Testament. For this, we have to go back to the book of Isaiah chapter 22. And this is a time when King Hezekiah was reigning. Hezekiah was a busy king. Well, I'm assuming that all kings were busy. But Hezekiah was extremely busy. And because he was so busy and so trustful that people would come to him and, and, and he could not get anything done. So Hezekiah had two servants. The name of one was Sebna. And Sebna, he was one of those guys who thought the universe turned around him. He thought that he was a favorite, he was the most intelligent and the one that everybody would trust because of his ability and his good looks. But there was another one, and this is Eliakim. And Eliakim was a different kind of guy. He was humble, he was honest, he was quiet, he only spoke when spoken to. And this is what God said to Eliakim. The key of the house of David... I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. Are you seeing what I'm seeing here? That God found a man who could be trusted, who was not thinking of himself higher than what he actually was. But a man who was true and honest, and this man will have the key of David. The key of David for Hezekiah meant that when, when, when Hezekiah received the message that this man was going to be the one for the key, he came to him and Hezekiah was living in a palace. Who built a palace? Say it with me. David. David built a palace, so the key was the key of? David. So, so Elohim receives the, the, the key and he is given in charge. Nobody can see me. Nobody can come inside to see the king unless you let him. You are the one that is going to close the door and nobody will be able to open it. You're the one that's going to open the door and nobody will be able to close it. Because you will have the key. Interesting thing that when Jesus speaks to his disciples, he says... That he is the one that has the ability to give the key 
for Hades. Jesus is the one with the authority because he is the true, he is the holy, and he is the one that can open and close and nobody can say otherwise. Verse 8, chapter, Revelation chapter 3. I know your works. Now he's speaking to Philadelphia. Jesus has been identified as the one who is... Wait, let's go back again. Maybe I have to start the sermon again. As the one who is... As the one who is... And the one that holds... Now, verse 8, I know your works, he says, I have set before you an open door. Remember, who is the only one that can open doors? Jesus, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have little strength. Have kept my word, and have not denied my name. I don't know if you see it there, but my word is with capital M and capital W. That is the word of God. That is the Bible. In John chapter, chapter 10, Jesus speaks to his disciples, and as he's preaching, he says these words. Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, I am the, I am the door. I am the door. So see, no one can get to, the, to heaven unless they go through the door, and the door is Jesus. So what Jesus is saying, all these gods that you believe, all these forms of salvation that you, that you think work, they don't because the only one that works is me. I am the door. I'm not, only, I'm not only holding the key. I am the door. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, Jesus is saying. So now that we know who Jesus is, or at least this is what John is telling us to understand, we need to ask another question to find our identity. And the question is, do you know who the enemy is? Verse 9, Revelation chapter 3. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. And every time I read that, man, my, my skin crawls. Because the synagogue was supposed to be a place where the word of God would be open and read and understood and studied. But the moment that those two words are mixed, it's because in, in the place of God... Man has placed the enemy. Who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. You see the opposite? They're not true. They lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. We have to go back to Genesis chapter 3. And you, you remember what happens in Genesis chapter 3. You see, God loved his creation. He loved them so much that in the garden, he gave them an opportunity to show their love eternally. And in the middle of the garden, God placed a tree. And that tree had a name. Remember the name of the tree? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, one of the things that we need to understand is that we don't know to know what's bad to know what is good. Some are confused. We don't need to know what is bad to know what is good. Okay, I'm going to tell you in two ways. First, Jesus. Did, did Jesus ever sin? Did he know what was good? Yes. So we don't need to know and experience what is bad to know what is good. 
I heard somebody say after a prominent speaker spoke and he told about his story when he was in gangs and he lived a bad life. And some of, the, some, some of the youth came to me and said, you know, Pastor, I think that I need to go into gangs to understand God like Pastor did. Like, no, you don't. No, no. No, no. You see, we don't, know to, we don't need to know what is bad to know what is good. Now, I'm going to put it to you in, in today's time, in today's terms. The, the FBI has a unit that is called the White Collar Crime Unit. Have you heard about it? See, they, these, these guys don't chase the bad people. They, they, don't, they, they don't chase gang members or drug dealers. These guys check people who are dressed in suits and ties. And what they do is that most of the crimes that they, they cover are crimes of counterfeiting. Because there's people who all they want to do is to copy the money that the United States prints. Ima imagine you, you get a hold of the paper and the ink and the patterns and, and the molds for, to, to make $100 bills. So there's people who are so good at counterfeiting that they make copies that are almost as good as the original. Now, what this unit does in their training is that they never study the copies. All they do, all their time and effort and focus is to study the original. Because once they get so familiar with the original that they know everything about it, when they see a copy, they can spot it right away. So we don't need to know what is bad to know that it's bad. All you need to know is what's good. And you know what's bad when you see it. So this is exactly what is happening in the church of Philadelphia. They are not focusing on what is right. And see, when we go to chapter 3 of Genesis, we find that there's a dialogue. A dialogue by a tree. And in this, in this tree, there is one of the creations of God. A serpent. And this serpent, the Bible tells us that it was beautiful. The book, Story of Redemption, tells us that, that the sun, as, as, as it reflected on the skin of the snake, it was like gold. So I understand this, that this is before sin. Before sin, animals were not like we know them today. So to be an animal that was attractive to Eve, it had to be a beautiful thing, not a serpent like we know them today. So when, when this animal speaks... Is because this animal has been possessed by the enemy. And there is in this dialogue a question. And the question is, when the serpent speaks to the woman, So, has God indeed said to you, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? To the naked eye, that was a good question. The words are the same that God had said. But in a different order. See, the devil could not come to Eve and tell her a lie straight out because Eve would have said, no, 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 that's a lie. And let me tell you something, family. The job of the devil is not to tell us lies. Is to confuse us. When the devil confuses someone, already won the battle. That's why it is so important 
that we understand what is true. Because then we'll be able to avoid falling in the lie. That's why it is important. See, let me tell you something. Let me tell you a story. There was this young man. And this young man was so close to, to, to his family, to the church. He was a model young man. And one day he came to me and said, Pastor, you know, I met a girl. She's so nice, so cute. She's so lovely. She's so well-mannered. And, and, you know, I fell in love. And I said, which one is it? I'm looking at the girls at church. And he says, uh, no, no, she doesn't come to our church. Oh, what church does she go to? Well, she doesn't go to church. So I asked him a question. If you had the chance, would you get married to this girl? And he said, yeah. Would you be planning to have kids with this girl? Of course. Would you be planning to go to church? Well, yeah. Would she? Well, I don't know. See, I, I told him, let me tell you something. If you two get married, you two are adults. You are consenting adults. You are intelligent adults. You have made a decision to live your lives together, and that's awesome. If you find love, that's great. But let me tell you something. In your life, in your life, you have to make a decision. And your decision is, first... What God are you going to accept? Because even atheists have a God. Science or logic. So you have to accept one God in your life. That is every, the need of every human is to accept a God. Second thing is that you have to make a decision on who you're going to spend your life with. And those two decisions are very important. And when you make those decisions, you are an adult, you make that decision. If that's the girl that you want to spend your life with, and remember, at this moment, they were not even boyfriend and girlfriend. I said, that would be great. And that is not the problem. You go to church, she doesn't, or she does whatever, but it, it's your choice. But let's say that at one point in, life, in time, you have a child. And then you say, well, I'm going to take our child to church on Saturday. And that's going to be good. But then she's going to say, well, let's say that she goes to church on Sunday. I'm going to take him to church on Sunday with me. And that's going to be good. That child is going to be going to church on Saturday and on Sunday. You would say, some of you, well, that, that's awesome. No. Because at one point in life, at one point in time, in the life of this child, he's going to grow up and ask this question. Well, my dad is a good person. He goes to church on Sabbath. My mom is a good person. She goes to church on Sunday. So I guess it doesn't really matter because my parents are both good people. That's the moment when the devil wins the battle. Because in the mind of this person, of this child... Confusion has already set in. 
That is exactly what the devil wants to do. He wants to confuse us. And the church in Philadelphia was a confused church. They had an identity crisis. They didn't really quite understood who Jesus was and they didn't really quite get who they were. And see, the bad decisions that we make in life, like I said before, we make them because we are not quite sure of who we are. But there's something amazing about this. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus speaks to his disciples and he tells them, For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to what? To deceive, if possible, even to the elect. Now let me unpack this text, especially the last part. Because it says, if possible. If possible. But let me tell you, when you have chosen right, when you know who you are, when you know who Christ is, it's impossible to be deceived. So the first question is, do you know who Jesus is? The second question is, do you know who the enemy is? Now, do you know who you are? Verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, let's pay attention to this. To test all who dwell on the earth. Do you dwell on the earth? Yes. Do people outside of church dwell on the earth? Yes. That means everyone. Are you with me? So not just the faithful are going to be tested. It's everyone. It's everyone. I've heard somebody said, well, only the faithful are tested. No. It's everyone. Now, there's two kinds of tests. We're going to be tested as a group. And we're going to be tested as individuals. Now let me tell you something. It is at the moment when we are tested that we truly show who we are. It is under pressure that the true colors are shown. But it is a beautiful thing when you know who you are because even under pressure you are happy to be there. Let me put it to you like this. Since my sons were little... I've, I've been always involved in their athletic performance. I, was, I have been a, a soccer coach, a, a baseball coach, a volleyball coach. I taught them how to swim. And, and, and I've always been involved with their activities as athletes. I haven't been there with the music part because I'm not a musician. But I've been there on the sideline. I've been yelling at them and coaching them when they were, since they were little until now. And it's never failed that in the middle of a game, when, the, when, when it gets tough, one of my boys does something good. The first thing they do is that they turn, look at the bench where I'm sitting, and they look at me. You know why they look at me? They look at me not to say, hey, great coaching, Dad. No, no. Then when they were little, they used to say this. Dad, did you see me? Did you see what I did? Because when they turn around and they see me and waiting 
to see if I was actually paying attention to what they did. And, and I smile, I go like this, or, or nod, or yeah, when they were little. They know who they are. They know who their father is. And they know that all they want to do in the middle of the trial is to please him. Are you breathing this morning? When you know who you are, when your heavenly father is watching you in the middle of the trial, all you want to do is to please him. Dad, do you see me? Because there's nothing most beautiful, more beautiful than when we go back home, we're riding in the car, and all we talk about is that play, this other play, this other thing. And can you imagine after the trial, when you go through the, through the storm of life and you kneel by, the, by your bed at night and you say, Dad, you know, did you see me? He was so beautiful when I was there and I trusted that I was your son. And when the tempter came, I said, no, depart from me, Satan, because I belong to the Lord. That is exactly what the message to Philadelphia is. If when you understand who Jesus is, when you understand who you are, it doesn't matter who the enemy is because you have it covered. You are covered by the mercy and the power of your heavenly Father. Verse 11, behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. That no one may take your crown. Are you breathing with me? That no one may take your crown. That means that you already have a crown. Now, some of you are trying to find it, but let me tell you. From the moment that you claim in that place, in the baptistry, not on the screen, but behind it, <laughs> that Jesus was your Lord, a crown was designed with your name on it. The moment that you claim Jesus as your Savior, in heaven your name was moved from the book of memories to the book of life. And Jesus said, He is my son. I have a crown for him. You already have a crown. And it's yours to keep. It's yours to keep for eternity. But the moment that you forget who you are, the moment that you forget who Jesus is, you're in danger of losing in the crown. So he's saying, don't lose it. Verse 12. He who overcomes. He who overcomes. And if you're going to be awake for a period of time during this message, this is the time. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Nothing, nothing holds identity like a name. You know, we live in a time where the taking of somebody else's identity is a popular crime. That is why now we shred our old mail. Because we don't want anybody to take our name, our social security number, our credit card number. Because that is identity theft. And what the devil is trying to do is to take our identity. And Jesus is saying, I have, I have the measures, the safety, the security to protect your identity. 
Because you see, once you trust in me, even in the times of trial, once you trust in me, even when it's the most difficult moment of your life, but you trust that I am the Savior, that I am the door, I am the way, I am the one that holds the keys and I close and no one opens, I got you covered. Because notice what it says, I will let you come into the temple and he shall not go out. Will be protected, will be inside my arms because I am going to be your fence of protection. See, back in ancient times, people who were slaves, they were given the name of the owner. People did not have their own name. They belonged to the owner and they were given the name of the owner. But there were cer certain times, special moments, when an, a, a slave, for different reasons, was able to buy or, or was granted freedom. When that slave was granted the freedom, he was given a, a plaque. And this plaque had his new name written on it and his history. For such and such time belonged to this owner, but from this day on, this person has received a new name. And this name is freedom. Jesus is saying, family... That he's going to put a new name on us. Because he is the only one that can give us freedom. He's the only one who can give us identity. In verse 13 he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, up to 1950, baseball was very different that the game that we know today. Baseball was a game that was played professionally only by white people. But in 1947, the Dodgers decided to contract the first African-American baseball player. Contrary to culture, contrary to society, contrary to tradition. And you know his name, Jackie Robinson. In fact, next week we'll celebrate Jackie Robinson Day. And what happens is that Jackie Robinson and that when the season began in the spring of 1947, 1947, wherever he went, he was yelled at and he was, and he was ostracized and he was belittled and he was attacked because he had something different. He was not white. And the story tells us, history tells us that one day as he was playing second base, where he was playing for the Dodgers, he committed an error. And the people in the stadium begin to yell at him, go back to where you came from. And all kinds of racial slurs. But the man who was playing shortstop Pee Reese went to where Jackie was with his head hung and his shoulders down and put his arm around him. That moment changed the history of baseball. That moment not only changed the history of baseball but changed the life of a man. That I, I'm to, uh, until the moment when Pee Wee Reese's arm went 
around his shoulders, he thought that he was in the wrong place. He thought that he was the wrong color. He thought that he was the wrong man to be in that place at that time. But when Pee Wee Reese put his arm around him, he gave him a new, a new identity. And the identity was, you are a baseball player. You are where you belong. You are not a black man. You are a Dodger and not just a Dodger. You are my friend. Family, the devil has been trying to tell us that we don't belong in heaven. He's been trying to tell us that we're imperfect, that we're sinners, that we don't deserve to live eternally with God. But Jesus came to this earth and on the cross, he opened his arms, not one to put around man, woman's shoulders. He opened both to put it around all of our shoulders and to tell us, you are mine. You belong to me. You are my child and you belong in heaven for eternity. And that is Family. Our true identity that we are children of God and when we remember who we are our life will recover its purpose and we'll never forget that even in the moments of trials and difficulties that life can throw at us we can be successful because we have already a crown of heaven waiting for us let us pray our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Jesus Christ. Because even through the moments when we doubt, His arm is still around us. Even in the moments when we have failed, His hand is still there to pick us up. And even in the moments when we don't know what to do, He's there waiting for us at the cross. So Father, today I pray that we'll be able to see Jesus and recover our identity. That today we can see that, that we are more than what this world tells us that we are. And that we are valued so high that we are worth the death of God. That when somebody tells us that we're less than what we are, what you made us to be, that we may remember that the purpose that you have designed for us is beyond our most loftiest ideals. And if there's somebody here Somebody listening at home who has not yet made a decision to make Jesus Christ the true, the holy, and the only way to heaven, their way, their life, their Savior. That today your Holy Spirit may touch their hearts and open their minds to let Jesus become the Lord of their lives. In his name that we pray. Amen. And as we think on, on these words, let us listen to this music. Believe 
Jesus is God's Son. In that He, He lives in heaven. And I believe Jesus saw the sins in me. In that He died to set me free. Oh, I believe the death of Jesus gave me life. I believe because Jesus lives, I am alive. I believe. I believe. I believe. I believe, oh, I believe Jesus loves me so much that he healed me with his touch. And I believe Jesus blessed my soul in that he, he made me whole. Oh, I believe the death of Jesus gave me life. I believe because Jesus lives, I am alive. I believe. Oh, I believe. I believe, I believe, oh, I believe Jesus forgave my sins, so I could be born again, and I believe. Jesus gave me a new start And now He He lives in my heart Oh, I believe The death of Jesus gave me life I believe Because Jesus lives I am alive I believe I believe, I believe, I believe.